The Old Pilot's Plain Tales The Mike Wildman Story When I first heard that Mike Wildman, a pilot colleague of mine, had been forced to suffer a leg amputation, I was devastated for him. As you will discover, though, when one door closes, another opens. This tale is just the start of his story, the story of a fascinating life in aviation. My dad was an electronics engineer, as my mum was initially, and that had a kind of uh, aviation vent, and I think that's where my interest initially came from, because my father was managing director of a company called Penny and Giles, and they made the first black boxes in the UK for Concorde and British Airways and all sorts of jets, and I think we might have even flown with them in, uh, in our Virgin Atlantic airplanes. I think at about 11, or 11 years old or something like that, um, Dad took me to Farnborough, and I've got a vivid, vivid memory of uh, Concorde getting airborne. Um, we were in the chalets, and so we were quite far back from the line, um, but I can remember the earth shaking with those four afterburners in as it got airborne and just being completely mesmerised and hooked by it. And that's kind of my earliest, God, I want to be a flight, my pilot memory. Initially, I was in the boys' brigade growing up, and I've always liked being in kind of organisations. The boys' brigade was a, an absolutely fantastic organisation. I was there from about eight years old. But then when the flying looked like it was going to uh, become an influence in my life, then I swapped across, as we do at 13, to uh, the Air Training Corps and joined the Air Training Corps at uh, 13 as well. I went to the RAF at 18 after my A-levels, went all the way through the aptitude uh, tests, etc., and the interviews at Biggin Hill, as it was in those days. Passed them all, but then was told that I didn't have the level of maturity required. So I went off to university. Hard to imagine, isn't it, Nick? Um, <laughs> so I went to university. Halfway through university, I applied for a bursary. Did the entire selection procedure again, passed it all. Was still told that um, they didn't think my level of maturity was high enough. So I did a four-year degree, it was a business studies degree, which I didn't particularly want to do, but I just had to go and get a degree because they hadn't taken me on. Um, at that stage, I was working behind the bar at Bournemouth Flying Club, um, just because I wanted to be around aeroplanes. I went back to my boss at Bournemouth Flying Club and said, I need a job for the next nine months. It needs to look like it's something sensible. So we said that I was going to install a computer system, but in fact, I was cleaning and refueling the aeroplanes every day. <laughs> But what it meant is that um, I could work and get one hour's flying a week. So I did one hour's flying a week for nearly six months. And then I worked nights in a warehouse to get money to live. So I was working seven days a week, um, day and night. But it gave me a chance to get my PPL. I did that for six months. And then I was really lucky that a company at Bournemouth, which is now called Draken and was Cobham, but was then Flight Refueling Limited, paid for an Air League flying scholarship. Then I was suddenly able to finish the whole thing in about you know, um, six weeks flat, flying every day, um, and that was marvellous. So in my year out in, in industry, I managed to go away and get a PPL. Um, so when I came back at the end of university, went back to the Air Force for the third time, either they were impressed with that or they were just tired of me keep coming back, but uh, eventually they offered me a job. And I did my uh, initial flying training and leading for fast jets on the Jet Provost 5. Uh, so I was lucky that I didn't have to fly the the JP3, which apparently was uh, a challenge. I, I found it interesting. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure. So I was lucky, I went straight into that. So I did a year and a half at Cranwell, was streamed onto the Hawk, uh, went off to Valley um, and completed the Hawk course, got my wings at Valley, uh, went off to Chivna, which we called Heaven in Devon, do you remember that? Mm, yeah, I went to Brody myself. Did you? Yeah, yeah. So I had two, two tactical weapons units. I went there, and that's where the wheels started to come off a bit. Um, 
Um, I was working pretty hard, um, not enjoying it anymore. And basically we decided to call it quits then. Um, and I went off to fly multi-engine airplanes, which probably wasn't a bad thing. I ended up, instead of being a below average uh, fast jet pilot, I was an above average uh, multi-engine pilot. So probably not a bad thing. Then went off um, and was posted to Lynham to uh, C-130 Hercules. The C-130 was just such a fabulous plane. They were massively overpowered. Well, we had the stretch version because it had much more carrying capability than it had actual um, space to carry the freight. So from, from a, a carrying point of view, so it was overpowered, uh, which meant it was great fun to fly. I was on a tactical squadron, which meant we did do the flying around the world at low speed, uh, going to parties sort of thing, the, 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 the Grand Green party machine. I remember going to Hong Kong and it took us three days to get there. And when you think that on the 340, it was 11 hours, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, so lots of f fun flying around the world, but also the, the main squadron's task there was uh, support of the um, parachute battalion. And so the idea is that you'd get up to 16 aircraft uh, flying in formation and then have a parallel drop zone where eight would be dropping 600 guys. And on the other side of, of the uh, landing zone, you'd be dropping small tanks, vehicles, uh, ammunition, all the stuff that's required. So you could effectively drop an entire battalion and its equipment in, in something like a, a minute and a half over, over an airfield. And that was very exciting as well. Um, the guys, we'd fly around at sub 250 feet, then pop up to 500 feet and drop the guys out. And when you think these guys were flying with no reserve, uh, the parachutists were jumping out with no reserve from 500 feet. Wow. Um, yeah, and, and they, they were expecting something like, you know, 1% casualty rate. Well, when you're dropping 600 guys, that's five or six guys every time getting Golly. injured or killed. So uh, it was very operational um, and very enjoyable. You were in the first Gulf War, yeah? Yeah, we, we were. And that was, that was interesting. We shipped out to Riyadh initially. Um, and uh, we were based out there for a, a number of months and a few other airfields as well. Um, and uh, again, flying various missions, sometimes, you know, um, behind enemy, enemy lines. There was, there was some interesting stuff going on. Were you involved in dropping our special troops back there? Uh, a little bit of that, yeah. 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 So that was, that was interesting. Um, and I was explaining to somebody the other day, it was in the embryonic stage of GPS. So we didn't really have GPS. We had, we had, an iron asset well, didn't work very well. GPS was just about coming in. And we were flying around, you know, over the desert at low level using a map and a stopwatch and, and maps that had come from, you know, uh, from 30 or 40 years before. And, and you'd be flying along and suddenly there'd be a six lane highway come below you and there's nothing on the map. So it was, it was uh, yeah, very interesting time. So you were also out in Bosnia? Yeah. A similar sort of work out there? Well, that was interesting because by that stage I'd been I'd come home and I'd um, been lucky enough to get an exchange with the Belgian Air Force. And um, they were inserting special forces. Uh, if you remember at the time in Sarajevo, mm. um, people were getting shot crossing the road by snipers. Oh, and, absolutely. Yeah. It was and, awful, wasn't it? and so our job was to sort of take some people in and, and try and resolve the situation. Uh, but that was quite, quite hairy. I remember one particular time when you know, we flew in and we landed these guys. And they were walking mortars, crump, 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 across the airfield towards the aeroplane. And that was, that was quite something. I was down in um, Mombasa, flying in and out of Somalia. And somehow, well, obviously I got, I got um, uh, bitten by a, a, a female, as you do, because it's only the females <laughs> that carry malaria, I don't know if you know that. And I caught something called falciparin. Um, there's two lots of malaria. 
Lauren Munch keeps coming back, which isn't so serious, but uh, falciparin is you know, three days coma, four days death. It's that quick. I came back to Belgium. I um, was feeling, it's got about a two week incubation period. Came back, was feeling desperately, desperately sick. Went to see uh, the doctors at Supreme Headquarters Allopowers Europe. Saw an American doctor who said that she thought there was nothing wrong with me. She sent me home. I came back the next day because I was so ill. Unfortunately, there was a British doctor there who'd been down in Belize and done the uh, um, tropical medicine course and said, I think it could be malaria. I was airlifted to Vegburg on day three where I did go into a coma and they, I survived, they saved me. So uh, one of my many near-death experiences, Nick. <laughs> the first few. of many. You've had a few, yes, absolutely. That, that, yeah. that is terrifying because it, it was only really uh, your story there that made me so aware of it. And I think, um, you know, our union did a great job getting us some decent protection from that when we Indeed. used to fly to these absolutely. places. Because yeah. I think Nigeria was second on the list of the worst areas in the world. For yeah, and that. a couple of our pilots did actually get falciparin, I know. Wow. Um, yeah. 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 So going back to... Your C-130 flying. Have yeah. I have I left anything out, or is there more? Oh well, well, to come? Somalia was was interesting because I've, I've read some books about the guys on uh, in the Gulf War on Tornadoes and what a bizarre sort of lifestyle it was, where they were flying out of I think um, Muharraq and, and living this fantastic lifestyle in the in, you know, in the evening and and then going and flying off into war during the daytime. And we had a similar thing. We were based in the Serena Beach Hotel down in Mombasa, which was a kind of five star plus hotel with two crews, and so. We had one day on, one day off, and on our day on, we'd be flying down into a war zone, into Kismayo and Somalia, um, in support of Belgian forces and the United Nations and all the stuff that was going on down there. And it was all pretty grim. And then we'd come home and then be sat by the pool and living this fabulous lifestyle. And it was, it was quite surreal. Oh, yeah. But again, that was great fun, ultra low flying, really, because it was fun, because I don't think they had any sort of surface to air missile threat or anything like that. That was just because we could. And we were there for six weeks at a time, and it was, it was uh, yeah, really, really enjoyable thing to do. So that was interesting. Also flying, doing airdropping into Sudan, uh, which was remarkable. We were doing something called Vlages, which is uh, very low altitude gravity extraction. So effectively, you'd have the aircraft down at 50 feet with the gear down, with the ramp open, um, with a kind of a, a tie-down strop with all the, the food on pallets at the back, and then uh, red on, green on there'd be a guillotine would cut and the, the whole lot would go out of the back. And again, when you're flying this thing, it goes from uh, full back stick to full forward stick, back to the middle, um, and you're at 50 feet doing about 150 knots. So <laughs> that was... horrendous. Yeah, that was... Oh, it's great fun. It was great fun. Um, and we used to do um, practice a lot of formation then because we were down there, there was two and three or four ships, and uh, so we did a lot of close formation then. And again for no real tactical reason apart from that it was fun. So I got a lot of cl uh, close formation again in C-130 apart from um, air to air refueling. So that was good. I think the most remarkable thing I, I did when I was down there, we were being tasked to fly out of uh, Rwanda before the, this is before the genocide happened. And we had, the United Nations were there and we had a, a three week detachment uh, in the Mil Kaleen Hotel in, in Kigali. Uh, again, sat by the pool, but because the, the, the situation with AIDS was so bad down there, there's no way that anybody could get blood transfusions if they were injured, and we were supporting Belgian troops for the, the UN. And so our job was to be down there and medevac them out to somewhere safe if, if they needed to do that. And so we had a three-week detachment by the pool. It was our turn to go down there. And we were a bit late. We, we staged through Cairo. Uh, so it was two seven-hour flights, staged through Cairo. And 
we were delayed for whatever reason. Finally coming into Kigali just about in darkness and we were in trail at about seven eight, seven or eight miles final with an HS125 in front of us. Next thing we know, surface to air missile comes up, blows the aircraft out of the sky. Um, it had the uh, presence of both Rwanda and Burundi, the neighbouring country, aboard. And that was the start of the genocide. It was completely premeditated. And even now, there are conspiracy theories in Belgium. And people, I've had journalists get in touch with me saying, did I think the missile was supposed to be for us? And um, to try and bring Belgium more into the conflict than it was. So we'll never know. But uh, obviously there was certainly a threat there. So in that situation, we then, you could hear shooting machine gun fire on ATC, which is the first and last time I've ever heard that. Again, we had, we had chaff and flare, so we pooped all that off, climbed to 10,000 feet in the overhead while our navigator was trying to get hold of Belgian forces on the ground and, and trying to arrange some sort of response. The guy who was the captain of the uh, team that were already on the ground had been there for three weeks. Uh, the tradition was that he'd come and meet the aircraft with a slab of beer. Right. He was on the ground, obviously waiting for us. The airfield was overrun by bad guys, and he went on the run for three days with just a slab of beer. Um, and when you think about the um, the training exercises we used to do, is that that's not a scenario you'd ever really come across, is it? So, so we we, we then uh, up to ten thousand feet. We waited there till the fuel ran out, and then um, went off to Nairobi. So, I was the first aircraft kind of in when that all started. Then over the next three or four weeks a bit like they've just done out in Afghanistan. We, we um, flew a evacuation mission to bring all the Belgian people really, and uh, plus uh, friendly workers and everything else, in a very similar situation, to pull them all out. And obviously they had got surface to air missiles because they'd, they'd blown um, the aircraft out of the sky. So there was a threat there. And again, I was fortunate that I was the last aircraft there and we had headquarters flight, we were you know, the last people to get on board. And literally people were, running for the aeroplanes with children. It was, it was a harrow experience. And we had special forces guys on the ground shooting outwards with the bad guys coming over the fence with machetes and things. It was, it was just the most surreal, surreal experience. If we'd lost an engine, you know, taxiing or whatever, yeah, I don't know what would have happened, but we were able to button everybody up. We left people behind as you do, um, taxied out, and I was the last aeroplane out of there. So that was quite an experience. That's the sort of experience that might play on your mind for years after yes i mean i was lucky that i didn't see anything in that situation there in rwanda i didn't see anything terrible i saw in somalia i saw some pretty horrendous things that are happening on the ground so yeah yeah they will always be there absolutely yeah you did some more interesting flying can i ask you to tell us about the arms ratification flights you did yeah i was fortunate when I came back from Belgium, Belgium, the Belgian Air Force has retrofitted their C-130s with glass cockpit. And so I was the only person in the UK actually flying glass cockpit Hertz from, from the RAF. The guy who was supposed to be doing acceptance testing for the RAF fell off his motorbike and banged his head. And under French law, because he was at the school in, in France, they grounded him for a year. Wow. So they had nobody to do C-130J acceptance, which was the new airplane coming in. And so instead of going back to Lionham, I was hoiked off to the side to... Uh, Boscombe down, didn't have to do the test pilots course and, and did acceptance testing, but I was able to fly everything that was there apart from the fast jets, so Tucanos and things like that. But Brilliant. they had about um, seven or eight different uh, heavy aircraft um, from just about everything. One of them was uh, uh, an Andover, 
or 748, I think the Andover was a stretch version, but it was full of infrared line scan and cameras and uh, the tasking. This was just after, this was in 94, just after the wall had come down um, and everything had changed and the walls were packed. And so our job was to be tasked by the Foreign Office, I guess, or I, I don't know who did the tasking, but was to fly at low level over pretty much all of the ex-Warsaw Pact countries um, taking photographs and, and various bits and pieces. We had, we had specialists down the back. Um, so we'd be fly, flying around the Soviet Union um, at 250 feet in, in an Andover taking photographs. And so you'd have the navigator would say, um, cresting over the next rise, you'll see, uh, you'll see an airfield ahead. And we'd, sure enough, there were sort of 30 or 40 blackjack bombers in a line. And it's like, I can't, you know, you just can't believe what you're seeing, you know. Um, and then we'd come down, we'd land and uh, then be entertained by the various um, squadrons and governments and lots of vodka was drunk. And yeah, so as we'd been you know, looking to go to war with these people for the last 20 or 30 years to find that obviously they were just the same as us and loved flying and loved you know, partying. And it was a great experience. And I was very, very fortunate. And I went all over Europe doing that as well as flying um, lots of other things. One other interesting story I'll tell you. GPS was just coming in and uh, they had the last flying comet Mark 4C called Canopus, it had a name, and they filled it full of GPSs of various types and inertial navigation systems. And we fueled it as much as we could and we went up to Thule in Greenland. Refueled in Thule, which was uh, like a meteorological testing station full of just kind of containers and things, way, way up north of the, the Arctic Circle. And then the task was to fly this 1940s generation uh, airliner up to the North Pole, the magnetic North Pole, descend to 250 feet low level, fly round and round and round and round and round and round in circles to try and confuse all this kit, and then fly home. But of course, what heading do you fly home from the North Pole? Well, everywhere south. Everywhere south. So you just had to um, put the sun in kind of the right place and then wait for all this kit to sort itself out. But again, you know, what a remarkable opportunity to do something a bit wacky. Oh, sorry, one thing I did miss. I flew the Belgians, I flew a Belgian C-130 back to Fairford for the International Air Tattoo. And I was sat on top of it, on my C-130, with my first officer and his girlfriend, drinking a beer. And two MiG-29s uh, were displaying. Um, they crashed into each other, and one of them came down and took the back of my aircraft off. Good Lord. So it came at the top of me at about 15 feet. And I just had time to say that uh, uh, my buddy, we're dead. Because remember in flying training and the combat training, if it doesn't move, it's going to hit you. Yeah. And it just went, got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I've got a fantastic photograph I'll show you in a minute. But the aircraft is burning wreckage, is about 20 foot over our aeroplane. And it, it took the tail off. We did a big wheelie because of the damage on the back. <laughs> fell off the side and held on to the uh, HF antenna. And I was able to jump back down through the escape hatch and catch her as she fell off. And that is a true story. The reason I wanted to talk to Mike wasn't just to hear his amazing war stories, but because he is an amputee pilot and leads the world's first and only fully aerobatic amputee formation team. More of that on the next tale, but if you were in a position to help fund him and his inspiring work, then... Mike, uh, if someone did want to get in touch with you, how would they go about that? The best way would be through the website, and that's teamphoenixair.com, and that's Phoenix, P-H-O-E-N-I-X, so teamphoenixair.com. 
My email address is there, but also you could call me on my telephone number. The UK cell number is plus four four seven nine seven three seven six two three zero one. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that at airlinepilotguy.com. If you enjoy Plane Tales, then why not pop over to Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice and leave us a review. Many thanks indeed.